So we've, uh, we've heard a, a bit of this story from the bottom up. We're going to hear it from a different perspective uh, with the organization that they're working with and that's partnering with us. Uh, Mark Birch is the Canadian director of C2Cs. He can explain a little bit about that, yeah. but most of all, bring us the truth from God that we need to hear this morning. God bless you, Mark. Thanks, Mel. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Uh, true confessions, I don't know anybody at Ellerslie Road except uh, Sarah and Akmal, who have been here all of this one Sunday, and Mel and LaDonna have been longtime friends, so I can probably offend everybody here today because I don't know what might offend you, so I'll probably say it, so there we go. You might wonder why I'm here, and it's obviously the connection to partnership and to be able to say thank you to Ellerslie Road for partnering with Akmal and Sarah, but also partnering with C2C, and I'm grateful for the opportunity because most of you have probably never heard of C2C. And that's not uh, unusual, perhaps, because we're a fairly young organization, came into existence about six and a half years ago. And we exist simply to come alongside church planters and churches and denominations to help them plant new churches, start new churches. We're like booster rockets. We, we go along for the ride at the beginning, get them out of the atmosphere, and then we fall away and the church is up and running and we work with others. And so that's sort of the work we do. The vision for C2C and the name for C2C came out of a discussion a number of years ago, uh, creating a go-to place, and the name is based on Psalm 72.8 that our founding fathers chose as the motto for, for Canada that he would have dominion from sea to sea, Psalm 72.8. And when Zechariah quotes that text, he links it directly to the coming of the Lord Jesus, one who comes humble riding on a donkey who will have dominion from sea to sea. And so our prayer is that would we hope that in our life lifetime, we could see more of the dominion of the reign of King Jesus from coast to coast. And so we've got a privilege currently of working with about 120 couples from 31 evangelical denominations. And part of what we do is we connect those couples back to their own denominations and, and look to, for partner churches. And so we are working currently with two uh, BGC couples, one out in Eastern Passage just outside Halifax, Rob and Julie Laidlaw, and then also uh, Akmal and Sarah in Winnipeg. And so as we began talking with them about picking up some of their support, and I knew Mel was in a BGC church, and he was a friend, and I said, hey, Mel, you have a big church in Edmonton. You should be supporting church planting. And by God's grace, he said, yeah, you're right. We should be doing that. That's why we're here. So thank you for that. Uh, but I'm also here to lift your eyes as a brother in Christ and to encourage you at the end of a, a month of missions emphasis and to ask you to think differently about this mission field that we call Canada. And I use that term intentionally, the mission field called Canada. You've been talking the last three weeks a lot about global mission and overseas mission and all of that. But I'm amazed at how many people, especially Christian people, who have no clue about how secular our nation has become and how rapidly the church in Canada has lost its influence on the mainstream. And I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time here. I like talking about this stuff, but we don't have time. But just a really quick flyover of the Canadian religious landscape would tell us this, that there are 24,000 churches in Canada from coast to coast of all stripes and breeds, Protestant, Catholic, Charismatics, Evangelicals, everything in between, 24,000, and 11,000 of those congregations self-identify as being evangelical congregations. Among those, the average attendance is 90 to 110, and of those 24,000 churches, three to 400 churches close their door every year in Canada for the very last time. And I'm sure in your travels, you've seen for sale signs in front of old church buildings. 
This is the landscape that we live in. Now, it's true that 66% of Canadians in the last census, 2011, still checked off the box that they affirm some sort of Christian faith. But when you drill into it and you say, what difference does it make in your life? And are you actively involved in it? What sociologists tell us is only 15% of Canadians are actually involved in the life of a church, even though they check off the census box. Equally, when you look at that 66%, only 7 to 8% of them would self-identify as being evangelical Christians. And of those 7 to 8%, about half of them are actually involved in the life of a church. Now that's interesting. 3 to 4% of Canadians. So if those stats are true, then what it tells us, if today is an average Sunday in Canada in March of 2018, that today there would be about 1.2 to 1.5 million Canadians in evangelical churches out of 37 million Canadians. We live in a mission field. So I'm here to draw your attention to it. But the theme for the month has been based in 2 Corinthians 4. We've got this treasure in jars of clay. And the treasure, of course, there refers to the message of the gospel. And Paul is talking about the glory of the gospel, the glory of the new covenant, as opposed to the glory of the Old Testament law, the old covenant. The good news that God is still in the business of rescuing men and women from themselves, from their hurt and their brokenness and their sin, and that God, through the finished work of Jesus, has done everything that needs to be done for us to be made right with him. And that when we look at our lives and we look at the craziness and the brokenness of the dysfunction of the world around us, the scriptures would say, yeah, but life was not created to be like that. There's hope for something different, and the gospel message takes us to that hope and that solution. And there's so many biblical themes and direct references and inferences to things that we should treasure. I mean, we obviously think of the things, the people we love and the things we own. So we talk of our, our families and our possessions are our quote-unquote treasures. But biblically, there are many, many themes through the scriptures. The treasure of the gospel. The treasure of humanity, men and women and boys and girls. The treasure of the word of God. The treasure of knowing Christ. Paul says it's a surpassing utmost importance to me to know Christ. The treasure of the family of God. Being part of brothers and sisters, we're not the only ones walking this journey. And the treasure of the nations. Ask of me, Psalm 2 says, and I will give you the nations. And as we wrap up four weeks of missions emphasis, and I was thinking these last couple months in preparation, how best do you bring it home? And I thought about this question, do we really treasure the lost? And I thought a good question to end this series with might simply be the question, how's your heart? How's your heart? Specifically, how is your heart for lost people? Might it be possible for the Holy Spirit to increase our capacity to love more broadly and effectively the people that we know and love who don't know and love Jesus? That's the simple question. And it's really the mission and the ministry that we've been called to, whether it's across the back fence or across the ocean. How is our love quotient? And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would stir up our hearts. And, and I'll just tell you, at the end of the service, I want to pray for you, simply a prayer of commissioning, that God would increase the capacity of every one of our hearts to love people who are far from God. But before we go too far, we should remind ourselves of the business we're in. Uh, those of you who do business have probably known the name Peter Drucker. He's probably the guru of, of business in the last generation. He passed a, a few years ago. In his book, The Five Most Important Questions You Should Ask, he says the first two important are, what is your mission and who is your customer? 
And as followers of Jesus, we need to ask those very same questions. And whether you like business language or not, if you look at the Bible, in my opinion, the mission and the mandate are clear if you're willing to take a serious look. Jesus himself declared, this is my mission. This is why I came. He said in Luke 19 verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And there are a lot of other passages we could look at, but for sake of time, we can simply say that Jesus came with a crystal clear purpose, and that purpose was to reconcile the world to himself. It was his mission, and now he's given that mission to us. John chapter 20 says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So it was Jesus' mission, and it is our mission. And so if that's our mission, then the second question of Drucker's is, who's the customer? And again, you look at Jesus' words and he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's my market share, Jesus said. On another occasion, Jesus is at a party with a bunch of quote-unquote sinners. And some religious folk around him start to criticize Jesus for hanging out with these irreligious people. And Jesus' answer is interesting when he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the mission is clear, and the customer is clear. The lost, the spiritually sick, those who might not even know that they need a Savior, those who are far from God, those who might not even be looking for God, those who might even be offended by being called lost. It's interesting, we've been told as a network on several occasions by Christian people, stop talking about lost people. That's offensive to people. Don't you know you're going to offend people if you call them lost? And our national missiologist says we have lost the lostness of the lost. Even among Christians, we're afraid to talk about this, whether they're apathetic or rebellious, however we define it. Those who are just like us outside the king's banquet table, this invitation, come home to my table, and whether they're apathetic or rebellious, before our hearts turn toward the Lord, that's where we are, and it's the story of humanity. And so if that's our business, our mission, our calling, then we must ask ourselves how we're doing. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I love this kind of stuff, but it's too too short of a time to really dig in. But in the North American church, what we're told today is among evangelicals that 80 to 85% of our churches are either plateaued or declining in attendance. 15% are growing, so that's encouraging. Until you begin to drill down into where that growth is coming from. And recent surveys would tell us that about 20% of our growth as evangelicals comes from biological growth. We're having children and grandchildren. That's awesome. They're joining the churches. The church is growing. 70% of our growth comes by transfer of Christians from one church to another church. People move across the nation. They need to find a new church. That's great. Or they move across town. And only 10% comes from conversions of prodigals, those who are coming back to Christ, and those who the very first time, and those coming for the very first time to Jesus represent in today's numbers only about 2% of our growth as evangelicals. Press pause there for a moment and think that through. As we think about mission... We have to always think about the context in which we do our mission. Uh, Our oldest daughter married a a German fellow, and they are church planting in Berlin. 
And the strategies that you use in a former communist bloc of East Berlin are very different than the strategies we use here. The last couple weekends, you were hearing stories about Russia and about the 1040 window and about other frontline areas of mission around the world. Different strategies for different folks in different contexts. Punjabi ministries in Winnipeg will use a different strategy and context than an Anglo congregation in Edmonton might use. And for most of us in this room, Canada is our context. And in case you didn't realize it, 2018 is your time. Uh, Are you breathing? Check your pulse. Chronicles 12.32, really interesting text. It's one of those boring texts that you just flip past because it's a list of names. It's a list of David's mighty men and saying from this tribe, several hundred, this tribe, several hundred, this tribe, several hundred. And in the middle of it, you have this phrase, there were 200 men who came from the tribe of Issachar and these men were unique. It makes this comment. They were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. You see, I think we need to be not just students of the scriptures, but also students of our times, the culture, and the seasons. And I want to illustrate it with just one illustration. There could be many. Politically, our world is more divided than we have seen in decades, and there's one area that I could use to illustrate that, and it is what sociologists, economists are now telling us is the death of globalization theory. And to make that long story short, since World War II, there has been a full court press, and certainly the last 30 to 50 years, to bring together the world markets and a a level playing field, and whether we think of it as a one world economy or simply a level playing field, that we would create unity in the markets, that we would come together through free trade agreements, alliances of nations, G7 and G20, the European Union, NAFTA, the Asia-Pacific trade agreements, and on and on the list goes. But the idea was simply this, let's get the greatest number of goods to the greatest number of people in the greatest number of places at the best possible price to all. But invariably, the benefactors of this kind of economy are those in the developing countries at the expense of developed nations. And the backlash is almost predictable as the pendulum swings. Now you may think where I'm already going. We're seeing it in our politics. We're certainly seeing it south of the border. It's in our nightly news. Donald Trump was elected on a platform, Make America Great Again. I am a dual citizen. I carry an American passport and a Canadian passport. I have one American friend, and he says, yeah, God bless America, and then under his breath, and only America. And that's sort of the sense that we have these days. At the Republican National Convention, Trump said this, Americanism, not globalism, shall be our creed. But it's not just Donald Trump. Years before he began running for the office, the Brits took a vote and and Britain decided that after a 43-year marriage, they wanted a divorce. After 43 years of being part of the European Union, they wanted out. It will be better for us to go out on our own alone. And so they filed for divorce and come a year from now, in March of 2019, that divorce, quote-unquote, will be final and Britain will be free from the European Union. France's far-right party, the Front National Party, did not win the last election in France, but they shocked the pollsters because they are so extreme on the far-right, and they did better than anyone would have predicted. And the central message for Marine Le Pen was this, keeping France for the French. And of her campaign promises, she said this, I will give priority to French people over non-nationals in jobs, housing, and welfare, including slapping an extra tax on any company that employs any kind of foreign workers. Keep France for the French. In Germany, the most popular chancellor in recent decades 
is growing increasingly unpopular. Primarily for the reason that many Germans believe Angela Merkel is not putting the interests of Germans ahead of everyone else. I saw it on the news Friday night. You know this, our Prime Minister has been in India the last week. And Canadian farmers have been concerned that he would address this inequity in trade because the Indian government has slapped new tariffs on the Canadian legume market, lentils and chickpeas, which are a huge crop for prairie farmers. And India has a huge market, but now a protectionist Indian government said, enough is enough, you Canadians. If you want to send your goods here, you're going to pay this tax. How can we protect India's interests? And I could go on and on and on. You know this full well. It's the stuff of nightly news. Instead of coming together in one global campfire and holding hands and singing kumbaya, the nations are retreating from one another into isolationism and protectionism. And instead of the walls coming down, the walls are being built. Now, I know you didn't come today for a lecture on global economics. And this kind of a message is very unique for me as well. But the ministry that we are called to can never be divorced from the cultures in which we live in the context of our time. Just think through the biblical examples. There are hundreds, perhaps. Isaiah's vision of a holy God in a holy temple, Isaiah 6, opens with this phrase, it was the year that King Uzziah died. That sets a historical context. A king who had reigned for 52 years, he's dead. That's the historical marker. Jesus was born just coincidentally in the year that the Roman emperor said there should be a census and everyone needs to go back to their hometown. And so Jesus was not born in Galilee. He was born in Nazareth because his parents, by decree of the Roman emperor, at the time and the place, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, with veiled apocalyptic language talking about Babylon, quote-unquote, was really talking about Nero and Domination and Titus, the persecution of the Roman emperors of the church in exile. Billy Graham passed this week. I'm sure you've all heard that news. Wednesday morning at 99 years old. And he was famous for his one message. One message. Salvation through Jesus. But he always tailored that message around the current issues of the day. You may not know that when he began his ministry, he began it under the umbrella of Youth for Christ. And their original tagline for his ministry was this tagline, anchored to the rock, but geared to the times. And Billy Graham was said to be a preacher who preached with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, always looking at current events. You see, we are called to live on mission in 2018. We are called to live on mission in the days of Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau. We are called to live on mission in a global climate of increasing fear and saber-rattling. We are called on mission in a digitally connected world where knowledge is exploding and at the tip of our fingers and in these little computers that we call smartphones, the world is at our beck and call both for good and for evil, right? at our fingertips. This is the time and the place that we live in. What do we know about our culture today? Well, we know that in North America, at least, the fastest growing religious group or designation is the no religious group, the nuns, they're called by religious sociologists. And what are the attitudes toward the faith from these so-called nuns? Well, in his book, Meet Generation Z, James White says the heart of secularism is a functional atheism. 
Rather than rejecting the idea of God, our culture simply ignores him. A very similar thought that Kathy Grossman says in an American religious survey said this, they're not thinking about religion and rejecting it. They're not thinking about it at all. And as I read that quote, I had to think of our home. We live in downtown Vancouver in a a fairly small building, a, a condominium of 35 units. And of those 35 units, my wife and I are the only church attenders in the entire building. And our neighbors are wonderful people. We have made great friends with many of them. They're good citizens. They go to work. They pay their taxes. They're basically clean living people. They love one another as neighbors. And they think religion is absolutely irrelevant. They think what we do is kind of quaint. You're starting churches. Do they still do that? Does anyone go to those things? What about the Canucks? It's just right on to the next topic. It's completely irrelevant. They're not anti-Christianity. They just don't care about it. John Rock, who's an atheist, writes for Atlantic Magazine, said this, It came to me recently in a blinding vision that I'm an apatheist. Well, blinding vision may be an overstatement. Wine-induced haze might be more accurate. It was after a couple glasses of Merlot when someone asked me about my religion. Atheist, I was about to say. But I stopped myself. I used to call myself an atheist. I said... And I still don't believe in God, but the larger truth is it has been years since I really cared one way or the other. I'm, and that's when it hit me, an ap-atheist. Add apathy to atheist, and you have ap-atheist. We were recently with a group of German leaders who were talking about church planting, not only in Germany, but in the eastern former communist bloc. And one leader said, Eastern Europe has not only forgotten God, but they have forgotten that they've forgotten him. And the North American leaders in the room sort of nodded and said, you know what, and we're right behind you. So how do we reach these kind of people? J.D. Greer, in a great book, Gaining by Losing, I think every church leadership team should read it, says increasingly in a post-Christian society, unbelievers will simply not make their way into our churches no matter how attractive we make them. For years, the Western churches enjoyed a common Christian language with the culture through which we could communicate the gospel. Not everyone went to church, of course. But the bedrock of the culture was Christian, and our primary focus has been calling lapsed or delinquent Christians back to the God of their fathers. But our world in the West is changing. The number of people checking none for religious affiliation on censuses increases at an astounding rate each year. Nuns, as they are called, do not casually make their way into churches for any reason. We have to think of them as we would people from a completely different religion. And by now, someone's asking themselves, where are you going with all of this? It's a great question. It's simply this. These are the times that we live in. And I want to simply ask you a question at the end of a month of missions. How's your heart? And praying, oh God, would you break our heart for those who are far from you? Oh Lord, would you give us a love for the nations like you have? Would you cause us to cry out like generations before us? And there are so many great resources at our disposal. I don't think it's about resources or training or curriculum or any of that. I think it's something deeper. And as we head toward a close, I want to point out two obstacles, I think, in front of us. And the first is this. What God has called us to is actually an impossible task. Now, you might wonder, how is that supposed to encourage us? 
Well, I want to point it out from a biblical point of view because it says what we are called to do to see people turn from darkness to light, from, from a, a worldview that does not walk with the Lord to repent and come to him is an impossible thing spiritually. The condition of the human heart, the scriptures say, is like this. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks God. Just take that one verse and think about it. No one on their own seeks for God. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They can't see or hear or understand. Zechariah 4 says it won't be by your might. It won't be by your power. It will only be by my spirit. And Jesus himself said nobody comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in John 6. And this should appropriately humble us. It should cause us to cry out, oh God, you have got to show up. And as we look back on the history of revivals and periods of renewal in the church, there has always been a common denominator that God begins with his own people bringing us to a point of crying out, saying, God, this is impossible. Lord, we cannot do this and we need your spirit to show up and we become a people driven along by prayer and dependence. The theme that you're looking at in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The context there in chapter 3 and 4 is so critical. I'd encourage you to, to dig into it deeply. But Paul is championing the glory of the new covenant, life through the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the finished work of Jesus. And he says the old covenant, the Old Testament law, had its glory, so much so that when Moses came down off the mountain with the original copy, he had to cover his face because he'd been in the presence of God and he literally was glowing. And the people said, cover it up, even though that glory was fading. And say the glory of the Old Testament, the law that says obey and you'll be blessed and disobey and you're cursed, and you're like, well, who's going to be able to meet that? Nobody. Okay, then here's a whole list of sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies that you can go through to be right with God. And yet Paul says even that old covenant came with glory. How much greater this new covenant comes with an even greater glory. It fulfills and replaces and makes obsolete the requirements of the old. What you were too weak to accomplish, Jesus has accomplished for you. Where you failed, he obeys perfectly. And the most amazing part of it is that he lives a perfect life not for his benefit, but for ours. He lives a life that I could never live and he takes the death that I deserve to die. And then in this incredible exchange, Jesus stands before the Father and he says, okay, everything that needs to be done has been done. It is finished. I've accomplished it. And now all of these have free access to come into the presence of a Holy Father, not because they merit it, not because they've earned it, but based on my merit alone. And that's why he uses that phrase, glory. It's glorious when you understand it. And even more amazing, to add icing on the cake, Paul says the more you reflect on this, the more deeper you ponder it, the more you dig into it, the longer you savor it, the more glorious it gets. Chapter 3, verse 18, we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed. The King James says from glory unto glory unto glory. And you start finding yourself saying how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would make a wretch like me his treasure. That's amazing to me. And like Charles Wesley, we started singing the old hymns. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain? And then somebody goes, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day's like heaven. 
My heart overflows. And you go, who writes that stuff? The people who write that stuff are the ones who have spent years gazing at the glory of the gospel. Men like John Newton who say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And our response has to be glory. And I would say if you're sitting here today and you're hearing the story of the gospel and you don't find yourself on the inside crying out glory, then I would suggest you haven't really understood the gospel at all. But hear this and understand it because Paul says it so clearly, not everyone will see it. Not everyone will hear it. Not everyone will understand it because the enemy's blinded their eyes. There's a veil over their eyes. But in the text, thanks be to God, the very same creator God who spoke over the darkness of creation and said, let there be light, physical light over creation, can speak into the human darkened heart and say, let there be light in that heart. And we say, thanks be to God, it's not up to us, it's up to him. And so we cry out, oh God, turn the lights on. This is an impossible task, but Lord, in Canada, in my neighborhood, in my family, turn the lights on. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's not about us. It's about him. The second great obstacle, and I'm going to close with this, is this. More critical yet, if I'm honest, I think it's this. I think it really is a heart issue. And I have to say true confessions, I think my heart doesn't really want to grow. See, Jesus looked at his city and he wept over his city. The Apostle Paul said, you know what? I would go to hell myself. I would be cursed if salvation would come to my Jewish friends and family members. Paul literally said that. I would be damned for the salvation of my people. A young man named Patrick is taken as a slave from Britain to Ireland. He escapes. He goes back home to Britain. But he is so in love with the Irish people that as a free man, he willingly goes back across the water as a missionary and evangelizes the entire island. And today we call him St. Patrick. John Knox cries out, give me Scotland or I die. Corey Tenboom travels the world well into her 80s, telling people there is no hell so deep that the love of Jesus does not go deeper still. Billy Graham preaches to over. 200 million people and 180 nations, one simple message, turn to Jesus and he'll forgive you, he'll heal your broken heart, he'll give you purpose in this life, and it all sounds so inspiring until I look at the guy in the mirror. And I have to say, you know what, Lord? I've got to confess that my heart is not drawn to lost people. My heart is actually drawn to my own comfort. My own ease and the approval and applause of men. I'm too easily satisfied. In fact, I'm quite frankly satisfied to spend all of my time with people who already know you. Who agree with me and cheer me on. And I'm saddened by this, Lord, but it's true. My compassion quotient is too low. I don't weep for my city. I don't care for the lost as much as I should. My capacity is not what I want it to be. I know that I should care. There are members of my family that are lost who are far from you. My neighbors who don't know you. My city, Canada, the world. Oh God, bless the missionaries if you will. But God, I don't have that much room in my heart. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that there is one who is drawn to the lost like moth to the flame. One whose name 
is friend of sinners. Thanks be to God that there's one who gave up his comfort, who suffered rejection. Thanks be to God there's one who regularly does weep for our cities. There's one who was and is moved with compassion as he sees lost sheep, helpless without a savior. And thanks be to God that that one said he would empower us to love like he loved. See, 1 Corinthians 3 says in verse 5, who's adequate for this? None of us are adequate for this. But Jesus will equip us. He calls us to let him do his work through us. And so the simple question is, how's your heart? Oh God, would you grow my heart? Would you pour out a spirit of evangelism on us? Would you give us a burden for lost people? Would you open doors that only you can open? And remind us, Lord, that you're the Savior, not us. It's not on us. The work's been done. It's always a bit daunting as a guest speaker to walk into a church where you don't know anybody and say, Lord, what is it you'd have me to share? And as I wrap up this month of emphasis on global mission, I thought it was simply best to ask you that simple question, how's your heart? Not at the macro level, the global level, the theologically correct church-approved answer, but at the gut. How's your heart? Do you love people who are far from God? So would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. The worship team's going to come and close us off, but I want to pray for you a prayer of commissioning and anointing of the Spirit, asking that God would give each one of us a heart for people far from God. So Lord Jesus, you know the men and women in this room, and you know the circles of relationship that they're involved in. You know the people that they know and love who are today far from you. And I pray, Lord, even right now that you would put the names and faces of people that they love into their minds right now as they think about it. Maybe family members, maybe neighbors, maybe co-workers or fellow students, people at the places where we socialize and we, we live our lives, but people that we know and love who need to know of you. And Lord God, I pray that you would pour out an anointing on this congregation, that you would expand their hearts like the Grinch, that you'd increase their heart three sizes today. That lost people would be a burden on our heart, not just your heart, Lord, but on ours. Give us a love for those that you love. Help us to see them the way you see them. Lord, we want to be faithful in doing our part, to be your hands and your feet and your voice, but Lord, change our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.